Matthew 26, verses 1 to 30. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, though whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city at a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. Uh, Very unique time that we live in. Um, Thank you to Craig Flood and to Aaron for helping set up the live stream for us this morning. Really appreciate it. I'm told there's 36 people online watching this right now. I didn't realize that my online debut would come with such fantastic uh, turnout. Just kidding. Uh, but, but, but honestly, one other comment I wanted to make in terms of introduction was uh, we do have a benevolence fund as a church. And if there's a financial pinch or crisis that you're feeling in light of this, we do have funds available for you. And all you need to do is email leanne at thegatheringchurch.com. And she's our deacon that oversees our, our, our mercy fund. And there are, there are funds available to you. And in turn also, if you have an abundance of, of funds right now and feel the need to give to that, uh, please 
do so as God prompts you to do. And those funds are used specifically to help needs in the gathering church, needs of our members, and so on. So uh, let's look at Jesus for a few minutes here, because that's what we all really need right now. We need to look at the Savior. And this morning, we uh, have a unique opportunity to just spend a few minutes looking at Jesus, the great captain of our souls. Uh, This text is broken up in a unique way. Uh, It's kind of a long reading. It's 29 or 30 verses or so. But if you look at it, if you have your Bibles open, it's broken up in kind of an A, B, A, B kind of way. You see there's a betrayal, and then there's an anointing, and then there's a betrayal, and then there's an anointing. There's a betrayal in verses uh, 1 to 5, then there's an anointing by the woman, and then Judas again betrays in 14 to 16, and then you could almost call the Passover, 17 through the end, an anointing of sorts. It's Jesus preparing for his death. So I'm going to unpack it like that. It's kind of a unique sermon. I'm not going to preach a four-point sermon, but I think you'll see how it goes here. Let's, let's pray as we ask God's blessing as we come to his holy word this morning. Father, we do ask for your help now as we come to your holy word. We pray that you'd be glorified. We pray that our Lord Jesus Christ would be the center of our hearts, our affections, and we pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would enable that to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage here, starting in 26, serves as kind of an introduction of sorts of everything that's going to follow in 27 and 28. For the last uh, several weeks, we looked at 24, which Jesus is saying, I'm going to come back. And then in 25, we spent three sermons talking about, therefore, be ready. Jesus is coming back, therefore, be ready. But what's happening now is almost like uh, the opening ceremonies of sorts to the Olympic Games. Let the Games begin. Because for thousands of years, Jesus has been planning and predicting through his prophets in the Old Testament of the day when the Messiah would arise Not just when he would arrive, but when the Messiah would come and give himself for the sins of his people. I mean, this is is the opening ceremonies of sorts. This is the beginning of the end. Jesus, God in his triune self, has been predicting for thousands of years the day when the Messiah would come and the Messiah would die for, atone for the sins of his people. And this is it. I mean, this is, this, is, this is what the Christian faith lies on. 26, 27, 28. Jesus Christ, the king of the world, is going to die for his people. This is, it's happening now. Daniel the prophet spoke of this. And Jesus' words now, when he speaks to his disciples, he says, In two days, the Son of Man will be delivered over. It's almost as if he's saying, My friends, for these three or four years of ministry, which we've been involved in together, all my days of training you, discipling you, all my days of preaching and proclaiming, those days are over. Those days have come to an end, because now is the time where I will now lay down my own life on my own accord for the sins of the world. This text is holy ground. 
This text is holy ground of Scripture as we come to the final pages of Matthew's Gospel. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. You'll see again, Jesus predicts his imminent death. You'll see an example here of Jesus' foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen. He's not surprised by it. Jesus doesn't get caught off guard here. You'll see here that Jesus says for the eighth time, this is the eighth time in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus either implicitly or explicitly says that he's going to die for the sins of his people. Eight times. He's not surprised. Jesus is not caught off guard with what he's about to do. And we need to understand this as we come to these verses. That Jesus knowingly and willfully sacrifices for our sake. He knows what's going to happen and he doesn't shy away from it. He's not caught off guard. He knows what's going to happen. Think about that for a moment. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is able to look at his people and say, I know what's going to happen in two days. You and I don't know what's going to happen in two days. We live in a very confused time. We have no idea what's going to happen in two days. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I know what's going to happen in two days and I'm doing so willfully. Knowing what's about to happen. He does so emphatically. He does so definitively. The first time that he said this was back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, when he said the Son of Man is going to be buried in the ground for three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. He gives an implicit hint that he's going to die for the sins of his people. He says it again to to, to Peter at Caesarea Philippi, uh, uh, Matthew 16, 21. Right after Peter confesses that he's going to be the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, he says he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and he's going to be killed. He knows. He's known his whole life. He knows that he's a man born to die. He says it again. Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. Over and over and over again, Jesus tells his disciples that he is the son of the man. And not only is he going to suffer, but he's going to be delivered over to the religious leaders of Israel, and he's going to be killed. He says it again and again and again. He says he's going to be the son of man, that he did not come to be served, but he's the son of man Matthew 20, verse 28, he's the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Look at verse 2 and verse 5 with me. You see this juxtaposition of sorts. Verse 2 says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Verse 5 says, but they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see what's being contrasted there. What's being contrasted there is verse 2 is the plan of God, and verse 5 is the plan of man. Verse 2 is the plan of God, verse 5 is the plan of man. In these verses, we see that Matthew is highlighting the sovereignty of God in this passage. We need to know that God's plan was sovereignly accomplished in Jesus' death despite the plans of men. Don't miss it here. Verse 2, two days the Passover is coming. The Son of Man is going to be handed over. 
And they say, we can't do this at the Passover festival, the men say. There's going to be rioting if we do this. So you have Jesus saying, in two days, I'm going to be handed over. And you have the people who are going to be the ones who arrest him illegally, capture him, execute him. And they say, you know we can't do it right now. This plan won't work. And the contrast, I, I, I hope you see the contrast, it's striking to me. Because Jesus says, I will be delivered up at the Passover festival. The men who are going to deliver him say, we can't do it during the Passover festival though. People are going to freak out if we do it right now. You can't do it during Passover. Jesus says, it's going to happen at Passover. God is sovereign. And Jesus was right. The very people who are planning the plan against him can't pull it off. They will, because it is in accordance with the decree of my Father and God. And think about it for a second. Peter never forgot. Think about the book of Acts. Peter never forgot this. He never forgot the sovereignty of God in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He emphasizes it. If you remember Acts 2.23, Peter's preaching at Pentecost. Everyone's gathered. And do you remember what he says to them? He says, this man, speaking of Jesus, was delivered over, quote, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to the cross by godless men and put him to death. You know, let me press this into us for a few minutes here. Given the situation that we're in, given the, the, the onslaught of the coronavirus and so on, God is not surprised. There is nothing that ever happens, ever, that is not according to the pre-planned foreknowledge of God. He's not surprised. You know, I, I, I rest in this doctrine, which, if you want to know the theological term, is called the meticulous providence of God. I rest in it more often than you'd realize. And I rest in it in small ways, certainly in big ways, certainly right now. Like, I can't, I can't control the spread of this virus or not. I can't control what's going to happen. But I rest in this doctrine of the meticulous providence of God in small, tiny ways. When I leave a meeting and I'm like, man, that was stupid. I should have said that. I rest in this doctrine. I go, God knows. God knows. When I have an unhelpful interaction with one of my kids or my wife, I walk away and I go, that's not excusing sin or anything like that, but I say, God knows. He is absolutely sovereign and in control of everything that ever happens. That's what's happening in this text. And it, 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 it is impressed upon Peter in a profound kind of way. It marks Peter's, Peter's ministry. He says it in Acts chapter 2. He says it later in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. He says this. He says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against you, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. I mean, that's remarkable. I mean, do you realize what Peter is saying and what what the Bible is telling us in Acts chapter 4? It's saying... 
Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, did whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Everything they did, everything that Pontius Pilate did, every jeer from the crowd, whatever Herod did, was all in accordance to the predestined plan of God. That's remarkable. And friends, you can rest in that this morning. You can rest in that this morning. It's not excusing sin. It's not saying that they were therefore justified. What Pontius Pilate did, what Herod did, is therefore justified. Absolutely not. It was wicked. It was evil. It was wrong. But the beauty of the sovereignty of God is that God can even accomplish his good. He can accomplish his will even through evil and wicked means. The greatest evil that ever happened was the crucifixion of the Son of God. It's the greatest wicked. I mean, he was the only sinless man that ever lived. He was God incarnate, and we killed him. We killed him. We murdered him. And the greatest good came out of it. The salvation of our souls. If that's true, and it is true, then what's going on in your life, what's going on in my life, God can bring about a greater purpose. God can use even evil things to bring about his good purpose. And that's the first thing I wanted to say. I wanted to make that point about the betrayal. We could say it again with Judas, and just as a cursory look, we can. Uh, Judas's plan, Judas's plot to betray Jesus was an awful and wicked act. But it was used within the sovereignty of God to bring about the ultimate good. Here's an, here's an antinomy for you, which means a, a seeming contradiction. This text has always confused me. It's going to say that it would have been better for Judas to have never even been born. It would have been better for him to not have even been born. That's a wicked statement. It is a wicked man. It would be better for you to not even be born. And yet, even within that, the sovereign purposes of God are accomplished. Well, let's look at the next thing. We're going to skip all the way down to 27 and 28. We could talk about the anointing at Bethany, and I might make some cursory comments to it, but we want to talk about betrayal, the sovereignty of God, and we want to talk about anointing. Anointing. 27 and 28, and he took a cup, and he would given thanks, he gave it to to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus takes the cup and he urges his disciples to drink from it. And he, and he emphasizes in this text, he emphasizes the unity of these believers, the unity of these disciples in their union with him, in their union with Jesus. And, and these words emphasize that Jesus established, he establishes a new covenant. It's a new one. That's why we read Jeremiah 31 this morning. It's a new covenant. It's not some kind of recapitulation of an old covenant. It's not some kind of changing of a covenant. It's a new 
covenant. He purchases forgiveness for the sins of his people. And he lifts the cup up. And he lifts the cup up and he says, this is the cup and the new covenant of my blood. And Matthew says it this way. That's the way uh, Luke tells Paul. But this is the way Matthew says it. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. And he's linking his death. He's linking his death to the Exodus. If you look at Exodus chapter 24, it's where the covenant is established between God and his people in the days of the Exodus. And after Sinai... The people of God are confirmed in this relationship. The the kind of grace that these people have received from God. And Moses takes the cup. He takes the blood of slaughtered animals. And he sprinkles it on the altar. He goes like this. He sprinkles it on the people then. Imagine me standing in front of you right now. Taking the, 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 the blood of animals. And literally going like this to you. That's what Moses does to the people. He throws it on the people. I'm not going to do that today. Don't worry. But he shows them. What he's doing is he's showing them that they've been joined, they've they've been brought back to God. They've been joined to God. They've been brought to their Savior. They've been brought to their Redeemer. Moses is showing the people that symbolically that God is with them. And this is almost exactly verbatim what Jesus says in Exodus chapter 24. He almost says the exact same thing when he says, This is the blood of the covenant. When Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the altar on the people, this is what I'm doing. He's using covenantal language. He's showing himself to be the true and better Moses. He's showing himself to be the true and ultimate blood. He's not taking the blood just of, of, of bulls and goats. He's, taking, he's saying, this is going to be my blood. I'm the one who's going to be sprinkled on you so that you might be joined back to God. I'm the one who's going to be the Redeemer and the Savior here. This is the blood of my covenant. What is he saying? He doesn't say, this is the blood of the covenant. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. He's telling his disciples, let me tell you something, my friends, he says, in a sense. I am the one, through the shedding of my own blood, who will bring about the forgiveness of sins for all of God's people. This is my blood of the covenant. That's the difference between the two. That's the difference between what Jesus says and Exodus 24, 8. Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, this is my blood. It's mine. And I'm shedding it for my people. What a beautiful picture. As Jesus takes all the imagery of the Old Testament. This is Passover. (laughs) This is Passover. The people were told once a year to come and remember what God had done in bringing the people out of Israel. And Jesus takes Passover and he changes it. He changes it. He says, this is not just the blood of the covenant, this is my blood of the covenant. He changes it. He makes something different. He makes a new covenant with his people. Not just a covenant that was talked about in Exodus 24, not just a covenant that was talked about in terms of the blood of bulls and goats. He says, this is a new covenant. This is what Jeremiah was talking about. This is what people were waiting for. People were waiting for a new kind of covenant where everyone now says, I am a Christian. No longer will someone say, know the Lord, because everyone will know the Lord. 
It's the nature of the new covenant. The nature of the new covenant is that you're born again. The nature of the new covenant is that you belong to it because you belong to it by faith. Because God has regenerated you by the power of his Holy Spirit and he's made you a new being. He's made you new by the blood of his own covenant. Isaiah 53, that great passage. Verse 11. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Justify the many. That's, that's, that's code language for the chosen people of God. He will justify the many. He dies for the many. He dies not merely for just Old Testament believers, but he dies for a multitude. He dies that no man will remember from every tribe and tongue, from Jew or Greek, slave free, male, female, he dies for a multitude. He dies for the many. He dies so that the Gentiles might be brought in. His death is going to be for them as well as uh, Old Old Testament Israel. He dies for a covenant people, the chosen people of God. But he doesn't just die for a few, he dies for the many. He dies for many. I've thought about this several times over the years. When, 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 when Jesus tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1 that the gospel will go out to Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, this is the ends of the earth. Portland, Oregon is probably as far away as possible as you can get from Jerusalem and Israel. It's gone all the way out. He dies for the many. This is my blood that's being poured out for the many. Jeremiah 31, 34, read it again. They shall know me. They shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The Lord Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am going to, what I'm going to do tomorrow is going to be, bring about the realization of what Jeremiah talked about six, seven hundred years ago. When I die, my blood is going to be poured out. Sin is going to be forgiven because my death, because through my death, on the account of my death, sin will be forgiven. And then he says, so drink of this cup. So drink of this cup. He's saying, trust me. Trust me. As the covenant sacrifice who's brought about the realization of your forgiveness of sins, if you don't drink of this cup, you will not experience spiritual life. If you don't drink of this cup, you won't experience spiritual reality. Let me be the one who nourishes you. Let this covenant sacrifice be the source of all your hope, all your joy, all your happiness, all the forgiveness of your sins. And then I'm going to close with this, verse 29. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's a promise that he's coming back. It's the promise that he's coming back. And Jesus himself, 
He's waiting. He's anticipating. He's longing for it. Jesus is waiting for that great marriage feast. And and this feast will be different. Because the one he experienced that night, his disciples were sitting there and one of them betrayed him. And he got up from the meal and he left. Judas got up and he left. And he got up and he left and he went to the chief priests and the scribes. And uh, the result was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew what was going to happen. He told him what was going to happen. And he laid down his life on his own accord. That's the last time Jesus ate from the vine and drank from the vine. The last time he drank from the vine to this day was the day he was betrayed. And he says, I can't wait for the day when I can drink again. And I'm going to drink again. And we're going to celebrate together when I come. Because the Son of Man is coming. Jesus is coming in the fullness of his kingdom. And he's going to come with a party. (laughs) He comes with a celebration feast. He comes and he says, when I come, we're going to have the greatest banquet and party that you've ever realized. Because it's the inauguration of a worker experience for all eternity. Would you pray with me?